This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero emissions economy. Welcome to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show. My name is Vivian Langford and salut Babette. Andy and I would like to pay our respects to the Wurundjeri people from whose land we are broadcasting at 3CR and to the Gadigal people from whose land we can be heard at Radio Skid Row. It's becoming more and more obvious to me that climate action is relying very heavily now on First Nations people. Tonight we go to the Torres Strait Islands where eight traditional owners are taking the Australian government to the United Nations for failing to protect them against climate change. We hear from Yessi Mosby, a Zenard Kess Masigman, and their lawyer at Client Earth UK, her name is Sophie Marginak, We'll also hear from the 350.org campaigner, Samoan woman Lisa Villamu-Jamison, who tells us about their campaign. It's called Our Islands, Our Homes. And you can look that up on the internet and see all the photos of the islands and also the link to the webinar showing the Torres Strait Islands. She says that 80% of the world's biodiversity now is protected by indigenous people. We hear the same theme from Malaysia, where Sharan Raj tells us about the Orang Asli, who are on the front line of protecting Malaysia's forests. COVID had some surprises for Sharan. And the best part is we saw crocodiles, which was so <laughs> uncommon in our state. And suddenly we had crocodiles, we had a pond full of lotus, you know, because the pollution was so low, the water became clear. And Sharan Raj has some surprising news for us as well about changing attitudes in Malaysia. But first... Let's go to Extinction Rebellion. Serena Everill and Rosaria Birchall take us down to the shop-till-you-drop consumer paradise of Burke Street Mall. They express their love of life on earth and their rage against the overproduction and overconsumption that is destroying it. Rosaria, could you just describe what did you do in Burke Street Mall? I hope you stopped all the traffic. We had a massive banner that said enough is enough. Enough with the buying and the shopping and the selling and the frenzy. And the performance uh, consisted of a consumer chain gang comprising three rebels dressed in grey, chained to their trolleys. The trolleys teetering with bright red and hot pink boxes. The boxes had uh, print on them saying stuff, more stuff, stuff I don't need, buy more, things like that. And um, they were looking very downtrodden with white makeup and and dark black bags under their eyes and were kind of, I think the trolleys were more propping them up than anything else. (laughs) And they were being driven by a couple of uh, corporate types who um, it was a woman and a man. The woman had a, is very tall and had a bright red wig and she was also carrying a stock whip. But the stock whip was being used to prod and uh, poke 
and otherwise manipulate and cajole and bully the poor three poor downtrodden shoppers pu pushing the trolleys saying things to the shoppers like you know you want this come on buy more you deserve it so we use some of capitalism's you know slogans you're worth it so visually it was very beautiful uh, very bright, very eye-catching. In fact, people, as they got off the tram, started filming and watching yeah. and laughing and it went down very well. What does this rebelling against Christmas shopping have to do with cli the climate emergency? You know, people get off and they take photos. I ask you this because years ago I did one of those sort of demonstrations, you know, dramatic things in the street, and I was dressed up as a polar bear. And I had this huge polar bear suit on. Kind of, I'm not a very tall person that crumpled up around my ankles, but people came up to me, especially tourists, and wanted to put their arm around me and take a photo with the cute <laughs> polar bear. And I don't think they got the climate message at all. How does this Christmas shopping connect with the climate emergency? Most of what we buy... It ends up in landfill. There's the embodied energy that goes into making the products. The three top products that are sold on events like Black Friday are fast fashion, uh, plastic and electronics. All the marketing and communication stuff that goes with selling this stuff too. Yeah. You know, imagine if that communications was actually was put into telling the truth about what's going on in the climate emergency, we wouldn't be in this state. But people get well-paid jobs for selling what is absolute rubbish a lot of the time. Yeah, well, you mentioned the word toxic, and I feel that it's sort of like toxic education. You wouldn't send your children to school if their heads were being filled with stuff that would make them die eventually. And that's what our advertising industry seems to be doing. It's promoting all the wrong values. And I wanted to ask both of you, just while we're here, we'll go back to that demonstration again, but what about COVID, the lockdown? Everything seemed to slow down, the frenzy, the people stopped flying. The frenzied sort of activity seemed to stop down as far as I could see. Was Did you, either of you get a glimpse of a different way of running an economy or our lives that gave you some inspiration during that time or not? Serena? I mean, I, I certainly started the lockdown with very mixed feelings. On the one hand, there was that sense of, oh, my God, I don't have to run around and do this and that and... I can, you know, actually practice being a bit quieter. But on the other hand, there was this terrible anxiety for me because we were listening to the science of COVID, but we weren't listening to the science of climate, the climate mm. emergency. And, and behind our backs, people who were, you know, following the environmental movement knew that the government was, you know, increasing its sort of degradation of a lot of our native forests, there was a lot of really bad stuff going on in the background. So I hate to be sort of negative about this, but so I felt I did actually at times really appreciate the quiet and I had to learn to accept it. I quite enjoy staying away from shops. Uh, yeah, it, shopping is just not a pastime for me. Um, but I did notice that everything was quiet. I loved the fact that I could ride my bike on the street and, and, you know, not feel sort of threatened by the traffic. I mean, we're totally all victims of capitalism and all the values that it has pushed onto us. 
And, you know, before we talked about uh, marketing and, of course, the, you know, the consumer culture, I'm a, a former academic and I was working in a school of business. Many of my colleagues were marketing experts. And we know that, you know, cutting-edge psychology is what is used to help consumers to believe that shopping and the items that they're going to be doing in shopping is not a want, it's a need. They try mm. to market it as a need. And, you know, here's where we're being bullied and manipulated. We do believe that our consumerism provides jobs for other people. Now, I know all this Black Friday ends up in profits and for shareholders and for the owners, but retail workers have a job because we go and shop. And even the, the sweated labour that you're talking about way back there in, say, Bangladesh and all the garment factories, those are terrible conditions, but... But that's a job. And so I, I sort of feel that we are, we are made to feel responsible for other people having a job. So how do you cut through that? I, I, I do agree that we're, we're at a decade when we have to turn things around. Capitalism is one huge thing. But what, what's a better way where people do have jobs, can support themselves, but this excess and this um, even excess, um, as you said, water use, but certainly electricity use, and ex excess transport and all of that is turned around. How do you envision it? Our whole system, this is why we talk about a toxic system, it all is self-affirming and it all creates the links in the chain that are so hard to break, but we have to. I don't have all the answers. Mm. We need to put our heads together. I don't mm. have any of the answers. Uh, huh. We need to put our heads together. We need to work it out together. But we do need to eliminate all the elements of the capitalist system because that's what this toxic system is built on. Mm. What about you, Serena? Do you have an idea of a different way? I think, Joyce, for me, I, it's hard to think about what it might look like. But, and I, but I think the journey is about generosity and community. I think, and I think one of the things that did come out of some areas of COVID is there was a bit of neighbourhood community building. Like my my neighbourhood did set up a WhatsApp group, and we and we there is still some traction happening on that group, and people are connecting with each other in different ways. But that we need to ramp that up. Mm. We need to look after each other. You know, the Uber driver that's earning six dollars an hour. It's impossible to live on that. We have to learn how to give out, give away excess food, how to take care of each other more. Those are some of the values I think that we tried, all of us, not just XR, many of us tried to foster within the, the COVID experience and we need to really keep that, that moving, that sense of generosity, of caring for each other, because that's the only way forward to, to actually find this new, new planet that we need to live on. Well, how does the prospect of extinction take everything to a new level? You said all the people got off the tram and took photos at the Burke Street Mall. How to get the message through? This is about extinction. Indeed. And, uh, you know, that, that was our key message, that whilst uh, Black Friday brings profits to shareholders and to brand owners and to um, the big executives for the planet, it is causing the decimation of species and uh, ecosystems and, you know, we are, we're hitting, I mean, science is telling us, it keeps telling us, we're hitting, you know, key tipping points. So we try to give that message, but it goes back to 
you know, the fear. I think there's a very fine line that we need to tread between being sensitive to the fear and at the same time sounding the alarm. I mean, we're all afraid. I, I also went through a period during lockdown where I experienced extreme anxiety. I had to seek medical attention. And, and for me, it was because of the links between COVID and the climate emergency, because we are inhabiting all the wild spaces. There's so few left that you know um science tells us that we of course we're going to get you know a crossover with mm. um, viruses etc so th- i guess that's where we got to with this idea for the festival of love and rage in december was putting together this idea that we're furious we're completely furious we're terribly frightened but at the same time we love our planet we love each other there's lots of really wonderful things that we can do as human beings. At the end of the performance, the woman with the red wig would shout out really in a huge voice, shop till you drop. And everyone did drop. And it was at that point that I, with a megaphone, I read a very succinct message explaining what the links are and that really it's, a, it's very urgent, the task ahead. There's no time to waste. We can't be polite anymore. We can't just, you know, stop at writing letters and asking for this and that. We have to do something. And we'll we'll make mistakes, but we have to. We must because it's urgent. The other people in this program are from the Torres Strait Islands and they're taking our government to court uh, or to the United Nations and for a determination about not having their future, their culture, their livelihood protected. And so shop till you drop, That's we, we understand that they are dropping, they're already dropping, their land is being eroded, their graves, you know, the bones are being unearthed. So that they're, they're facing cultural extinction. Serena, just you wanted to tell us about this Love and Rage Festival. It's on December the 12th, so listeners in Melbourne can go to it. Start at midday with a welcome to country at Birrarung Ma. Then we're going to um, put some boats into the river, including our beautiful pink boat, the Tuvalu. They're going to um, motor and, and paddle up the river toward Princess Bridge and then they're going to come back and put out some banners about which basically say we're up Shit Creek and then there'll be um, some roadblocks happening in the city for people who want to ta- push the boundaries a bit more. The Red Rebels will be out there reminding us about the grief and extraordinary emotion associated with this crisis that we're in. Uh, there'll be women in massive big dresses which say things like no gas-led recovery because, of course, the gas-led recovery being promoted by the Morrison government is a huge mistake. So they'll be, they'll be kind of twirling and whirling themselves down Burke Street through Burke Street Mall. Bikes will be riding through the city. We're basically going to take over the city as much as possible and really put out the message and try and get people to wake up. You know, COVID is still with us. We are being incredibly, we, you know, we do really believe in the science and we will, many of us will be wearing masks. Um, so it's takethepledge.earth. People could go to that website and sign up. Okay. And they, they, don't, they don't have to block a road or ride a bike. They can simply help us by um, handing out flyers, like Rosaria said, 
mm. talking to the public about why they might, why you should join the rebellion and help us out. We've been talking to Serena Everill and Rosaria Buccielli. And as you can see, it's very serious. But on the other hand, it's very exuberant and joyful as well. It's a festival of joy and rage. So I'm, I'm happy to advertise that. And I hope some of you listeners will be able to go there on December the 12th for that next event or join up with Extinction Rebellion. Help us as the First Nation people. The Torres Strait is a string of low-lying islands at the very northern part of Australia. The Torres Strait Islander people have lived in the region for more than 60,000 years, making it one of the world's oldest continuous cultures. The region also encompasses part of the Great Barrier Reef, and it is a critical and unique habitat. However, the islands are now under siege due to the impacts of climate change. Last year, a group of islanders represented by lawyers from Client Earth and campaign organisation 350.org Australia decided to bring a legal case to fight for the future of the Torres Strait. In this session, we'll hear from those who are leading the fight in this groundbreaking human and environmental rights case. My name is Sophie Marginak and I lead the climate accountability team at Client Earth. We use the law in innovative ways to force governments and companies to take greater action on climate change. This is a landmark complaint. It's the first case that's been brought by people living on very low-lying islands against their own government. It's the first climate change case on human rights grounds to be brought against the Australian federal government. And it's also the first uh, climate change case to rely on the human right of Indigenous minorities to enjoy their culture. And the case alleges that by failing to take meaningful action to reduce greenhouse gas emissions or to build proper seawalls and other adaptation measures in the Torres Strait region, the Australian government is failing in its legal human rights obligations to our clients and their communities. The human rights that are engaged are the right to life, the right to culture and the right to protection of family and home and also the rights of children, particularly Indigenous minority children. These rights are contained in an international treaty called the Covenant on Civil and Political Rights that Australia has signed up to, and therefore that means that it has guaranteed these rights to all persons within its territory. So our clients say that Australia's lack of action is failing to protect their human rights from the uh, climate-related environmental degradation. I lived and worked in the Torres Strait myself in 2010 and since that time stayed in touch with the communities and I've seen firsthand how connected Torres Strait Islanders are to their islands and how that connection is not just one of sustenance that they get from, from the land and from their sea country but also that that's yeah, an emotional and spiritual connection which means that they, their health and is really bound up with the health of the environment and the health of the islands. So they really feel these changes in the environment very deeply and that impacts the whole way they live. It impacts their, their culture, the way that they relate to the natural environment and it means that they simply can't consider relocation as an option. We worked with the Torres Strait Land and Sea Council, uh, GBK, and the communities to design a legal and campaign strategy that suited the islanders 
and all of the communities across the region are really behind the eight claimants in this case. We have uh, responded to the Australian government's uh, latest uh, submission uh, and then the government will respond to our client's uh, case again next February and then the Human Rights Committee should make a final decision in the communication sometime next year in 2021. Sophie, what message would you like to leave people with today? I think the main message that this case really highlights is that climate change is not just an environmental issue. It's a human rights problem and it really will affect uh, people all around the world, particularly these very remote uh, and and vulnerable communities uh, such as our clients who are so connected to the natural environment and the ecosystems around them. And that's why climate change is an issue of justice and why uh, we are fighting to help these communities protect their islands and their cultural connection to their land. And finally, the loss of these communities and this culture would be a tragedy for all humanity because we would really be losing a rich and ancient culture and not just a pristine ecosystem. My name is Jesse Mosby. I'm from the tribe of the Central Island within the Pada Torres Strait. I am the child of the Southeast wind and my star constellation is the morning star. I am a Torres Strait Islander, which is in between the mainland of Papua New Guinea and the tip of Australia. And Yessi, what is your role in this action? I am one of the eight claimants, which feels with great concern that something needs to be done now for our future and their children after them. What's happening on your islands at the moment? There's a lot of things which is is not right. Walking on the beach with my my children and fellow family member from my my clan, picking up our ancestral remains like pearl shells or shells on the beach is not something good. It's it, it it hits us mentally, physically, and spiritually. We have spiritual connection to our ancestors living on this island, which dates back to over 60,000 years. I can recall my grandfather, my, my father, telling me that my grandfather told him that this is your great-grandmother and having me and my children to walk because of erosion and inundation, which revealed the remains to walk and pick her up, is something which is hurtful. Scarred our home, scarred our land, scarred our life. To take her remains half out to sea and half left on the shorelines is not what no family in this world should, you know, ever experience. She wasn't buried on the shoreline in the first place. She was buried 20 yards in from the shoreline. And she was buried with respect from her fellow tribesmen from my home on her traditional land now where she was buried is actually now the shoreline. The bird life we have here in the village, we see that we don't have all the other colonies of the birds. We don't see booby birds here on the island anymore. We don't see pelicans here on the island anymore. It hurts us, it scares us, because we know that if our home won't be here anymore, then it will affect not only the life of the people as human beings, but it will affect the life of all the natural inhabitants, all the bird life. It affects our fish life now as we speak. I have to go further to collect food 
to put on the table to feed my children. The daily staple here on the island is mainly the garden foods and seafood. The weather prediction is not predictable anymore. We used to could read the weather. We used to could read that the tides and the timing of, of when is a good time to plant crops. And that teaching was handed down from over 60,000 years. Now our teacher who holds that ancient knowledge are very confused is because we cannot predict the tides. We cannot predict the seasons. We have longer droughts. We have shorter rainstorms, but it hits us with a bang and it floods our crops. It's wasn't like that before. Our life was much more peaceful, much more happier. We weren't struggling like this now. We have lagoons where I used to go as a child. It's not there anymore. It's all covered in sands. We have coral bleaching, which is, we cannot stop it. It's confusing, it's frustrating. It's not like any other culture throughout the world. All our history has been documented in our ancestral and our oral speaking, nothing has been written down in black and white. And we are connected through all our ancestral remains, which is buried on our country. And their remains reveals of our existence here on this country, that we were here for over 60,000 years ago. When we stay here on our island, we feel at one, we feel loved, we feel respected, not from the families, not from the clans, not from the tribe, but from the land itself. The aura around this island depicts and tells other people of who we are as York Islanders, Masik people. This island is our birthplace. This island is our cemetery. This island is our school. This island is our hospital. Spiritually, we are connected to the land, the sea, and the sky. I would like to leave this message here. We're only a piece of the grain, which the sand, which lies on this earth. Nobody knows about us, but people will be, and people will know about us. We are not stopping from fighting for our life, our living here on our own island. That's all we're asking for. But your contribution, your support, and your voice will help us, not only me, not only the future generations, but their children upon their children upon their children will hold great respect for you, for your move, what you're going to be doing today. In helping a 60,000 years old ancient culture, which is still being practiced today very proudly and very strongly, will still be practicing it in another 100 years to come with your support. This critical action is being supported by a public campaign, Our Islands, Our Homes. Hi, Grace. Tyler for lover, everyone. My name is Lisa. I'm based in um, Brisbane, Australia. I'm a proud Samoan Australian woman. So 350 Australia is an NGO that is building a grassroots movement to stand up to the fossil fuel industry. Um, our aim is to see a just transition from coal, gas and oil to a renewable energy future for all. Some of our biggest achievements have been seeing eight Australian universities and several local institutions divest from the fossil fuel industry. Um, we've also put pressure on banks to um, not fund Adani's coal mine in Australia 
and we've been a part of the historic Pacific Climate Warrior um, canoe blockade in Newcastle. Not only is the Our Islands Our Home justice campaign a landmark case, um, it's also spearheaded by Torres Strait Islanders on the front lines of the climate crisis. Um, we need to acknowledge that Indigenous pe people play a vital role in providing solutions for the climate crisis. Um, and this campaign is particularly special because we are incorporating Torres Strait Islander people, culture, law, customs and language. Um, and we are really excited to work at a grassroots level. Um, so we are working in collaboration with the claimants and communities on the front lines. That is really significant. And what personally motivates you about this campaign? Uh, being a Samoan woman, um, I have a strong tie to my ancestral homelands, uh, which are also on the front lines of the climate crisis. And living here in Australia, I feel it's my duty and responsibility to be in solidarity with Torres Strait Islanders. Uh, they haven't contributed to the climate crisis, yet they're on the front lines of it. So I feel personally connected, um, particularly to Yese. Last year, I had the honour to go up to his island home of Masik in the Torres Strait, and I saw um, just how severe the climate crisis is. So one particular memory that really stands out is seeing Yese pick up his ancestors' bones from their sacred sites um, due to erosion and the climate crisis. And uh, I can't imagine having to do that with my own grandmother's bones. So it's something that really motivates. Well, scientists say that a million species face extinction within the next few decades without any major changes to the way that we interact with nature. Um, but that decline is happening at a slower rate on Indigenous people's lands where Indigenous people are in control and managing um, those lands and seas. Comprising of only under 5% of the world's population, Indigenous people uh, do protect up to 80% of the world's biodiversity. Uh, we have so much to learn from Indigenous people in the way that they steward their lands and seas and we should as a priority listen to them and implement their solutions. Um, in this case, we'd love for you to support the Torres Strait Islanders and sign our petition, ourislandsourhome.com.au. If our food source is gone, then our race is gone. But as a tribe and as a nation, there will be nothing of us. Help us as the First Nation people. Now we're going to Malaysia. I heard Sharan Raj speaking at a Green Left Eco-Socialist Summit and he said the way we are going we'll all soon be dead meat. The dinosaurs will be back for sure, he said. So I was curious and I asked him, how do you see the climate crisis? When you look at the climate change, what will uh, the climate crisis, the climate will change so rapidly that it will become unsustainable for humans. You will have rainforest in the South Pole and the North Pole because that's what happened when last time the earth was so hot. But 
what happens that time is the dinosaur, the reptile strife, but mammals like us, like human, especially big mammals like us, have, will not stand a chance. So which is why I speculated <laughs> that Mother Nature will go on. She will move on. She will evolve, but she will not sustain us anymore. So that is actually the end of humans. So when you talk about climate crisis, Mother Nature will move on. She will evolve. But we, the children of Earth, will never survive. We will actually extinct. And the best part is, we are the first species, so-called, with, with intelligence. And we technically killed ourselves. And the dinosaurs come back because we were dead. <laughs> so, so that is what I, wanted. I actually spoke about it. Yeah. Well, talking from Malaysia, you mentioned that, for example, the fish are going out of Malaysian waters into Thailand where the fishermen can't follow. What's happening to Malaysian farmers and fishermen? And like, how is it affecting them, climate change, already? I think in terms of crops failure, it's already existing. Uh, the weather is extremely erratic. The crop cycle is becoming very unpredictable year by year. There's a lot of crops failure. And of course, uh, it is also making it very hard for the farmers. And when you talk to the policy makers, they are telling to use more fertilizers instead, and it's still yielding no result. And when you look at the fish folks that we're saying, they were so reliant on catches from the sea. And what's happening now, as the equator is heating, when you talk about uh, climate crisis, the global warming is unequal. And when you look at equator and South Asia nations, like India, Pakistan, and then equator nations like Indonesia, Malaysia, we actually suffer more compared to the countries towards the global north. So what happens is our fish uh, are actually swimming up north, which goes into the sovereign uh, waters of Thailand, and which is a no entry for Malaysian fish folks. And this is resulting them having to have very low catch. And it's also not only affecting their income, it's also affecting the Malaysian people. Because if you look in Malaysia, the seafood is actually more expensive than eating beef or chicken. Okay, and this actually changed in other parts of the world where catch produce is actually cheaper than farm produce. Mm. And now we are actually forcing uh, to, to people, I'm sorry, we are actually now forcing the fish folk into going to do what is known as fish farming. And this is actually, it's not an easy thing for them because it is capital intensive and most of fish folks in Malaysia actually falls in the lower income community. So we are at risk of wiping out the entire community because of the distress in the rural economy. A lot of the youngsters are actually coming to the urban area. And this is causing a serious unemployment and housing of, uh, issues in the, in the urban area itself. So when we look at this, this is the broad range that is happening. It looks as simple as the fish is moving up north mm -hmm. or the crops is failing. Why not we just import more? But when in long term you look, the rural economy is so distressed that the people are moving in urban area. It is causing a housing crisis. It's causing a, zo a job crisis. Let's talk a little bit about some solutions the, in the air. Since the COVID pandemic, a lot of people I know here are talking about putting our economy on a survival path, resetting, you know, ideas like degrowth and a universal basic income and the Green New Deal. These are all becoming mainstream, whereas before they were on the margins, but now we're starting to grab for something that will save us. And I want to know, what do the transitional steps to this kind of saving ourselves look like in Malaysia? When you look at during COVID, there was a prolonged period of lockdown in most of this country, and it allowed Mother Nature to recover. We saw squirrels, animals, birds, deers coming back to the city, 
even in my place where i'm living now in in a small in a town called aikaro the water has been so brown that we have never seen the bottom of the river but during the covid pandemic when the industries were all closed the water became crystal clear it becomes like glass you can actually see the bottom of the river and people was like oh wow this is amazing and the best part is we saw crocodiles which was so uncommon in our state and suddenly we had crocodiles we had a pond full of lotus you know because the pollution was so low the water became clear and then you had a huge pond of lotus and everybody was taking photograph and putting it on instagram hey guys <laughs> europe came to malaysia so these kinds of things have made people realize that if you give space mother nature can actually thrive again she can fix herself there's still room for that and people are asking now is the time for the new green deal our economic system of infinite growth is not sustainable our inequality is unsustainable exploiting our environment to the maximum is unsustainable so this question is actually very good and how do we move forward from here i think it differs by society society everybody have different material conditions and i think in that sense even australia and malaysia be very very uh, differently also in terms of historical and so on and i think we let all the people decide collectively how they want their common future but one thing's for sure that if we learn our lesson today from what covid taught us and we uh, design a different future our future will be very amazing or else we will risk killing ourselves and let the dinosaurs come back again <laughs> well well look i'd like to talk a bit about renewable energy because i know that malaysia is an industrial country and i came a few years ago to a conference there in malacca about energy efficiency and they were very keen on it and pushing you know all sorts of things about that but i've read about the company called ng which australians will know because they owned one of our big coal fired power plants down here but ng are saying they could provide all malaysia's electricity with rooftop solar and i wondered how is the government are they helping them with you know tax breaks and things um and are you considering having some publicly owned renewable energy Okay, when we look at energy, what we are looking at uh, renewable energy is renewable energy is also a means of for us to democratize energy. Because when we look the current energy system, a power plant is either owned by the government or owned by a capitalist, and then you have to purchase the power from them. But when we look at renewable, it gives us a chance for people to own their own energy. Most Malaysians are questioning the need for us to give huge amount of tax break to big corporations. Why are we? nationalizing uh, cost why are we nationalizing risk but privatizing their profit rather than doing that why, uh, why can't a government linked company a, the state owned enterprise do it or let fund give the funding it's up to the people for people to do it in a way it's good and this year we saw something very interesting uh, the government have started a program in malaysia known as my surya so some of the low income families are actually given free rooftop solar panels and anything excess is actually purchased by the state owned utility to be resold to the uh, to industry so this improves the income for that so something like this we should push forward and malaysia have set a target to achieve a 25% renewable energy by 2025 is very very extremely low because under business as usual malaysia will actually reach 30% including hydro you easily <laughs> cross 40% and we are saying to the government no this is low this is low so you have set yourself a low target because you know you'll breach it uh, by manifold and then you'll start claiming yeah we did great so we don't want that so now we are asking them to push renewable higher let's take it 50% by 2025 it's not a impossible task and malaysia has the engineering capacity because like you mentioned we are industrialized country 
and we are demanding for Malaysia to set our target higher and at the same time democratize uh, renewable energy so that people can also they do become less dependent to mm. to to a capitalist yeah. oh that's good news look the media often talk about um climate action in terms of the economy and in business they don't take many other angles and i'd like to know what does serious climate action the whole subject of climate action really mean in malaysia and in your region okay when we look at climate action unfortunately malaysia is not an example you would like to look uh, i feel there are better climate actions in australia from the states i'm not talking about the federal government in terms of like what we heard it from the state of new south wales the state of victoria they are doing better and but there is a lot of push from the people especially from the younger generations who are so worried about their future whether they'll be around whether can they reach the age of their grandparents at the first place or the the human civilization ends from there and this have pushed the government to actually tighten some regulation but there's a lot of push back from the business sector in Malaysia a lot of Malaysian business sector are extremely extremely against or any form of tightening uh pollution regulations uh whether you talk about the energy efficiency for building whether you talk about the compulsion uh, installation of solar panels and so on so all of this are not really taking big center stage but then again there has been some strong push one of it is to do fuel switching because malaysia we have a lot of young fleet of coal power plants and they will be uh, operating until 2060 so there has been demands to actually switch it from coal to do, to domestic natural gas although it is uh, still a fossil fuel but it provides a 50% reduction than the current uh, state of it so this is uh, some uh, short term games that has been being pushed around and the other push this being that the people have actually pushing the government to increase uh, renewable Tracia Community Radio 855 AM move to the forest now because you know that's what i think of in malaysia i think it's famous for its tropical forests and i traveled there and i did see the palm plantations palm oil plantations and i saw the red mud sort of weeping down the hills as i was in a day of incredible rain and i thought oh the erosion in this palm plantation compared to a beautiful forest but you said in the talk you gave that a great tree in malaysia will sequester 10 times more than say a tree in Norway. I would like you first to set the scene, just describe some of these great forests. What do they look like? Malaysia actually has the oldest rainforest and the oldest you're talking about 130 million years ago, you know. That is uh, came even after the woolly mammoth and it's still here even after the woolly mammoth lost, okay? So that is the and this forest when you look at the size of their tree they are so huge that you need about 7 to 8 people to actually hold their hands in circle and that is as big as the trees can get and they are really really tall judging by that they actually a pull a huge amount of carbon dioxide which is amazing and when you look at our forest rainforest they are actually also densely packed so this is why we say that one tree here in southeast asia tropical rainforest tree is actually 10 times compared to the trees in the northern europe so sometimes uh, you know our politician wants to justify themselves to cut the tree they said hey but look at 
Europeans, they are also cutting tree. They are cutting uh, five times more, four times more. They have chopped their whole tree. There's no more Robin Hood. There's no more Sherwood. You know, they will always <laughs> pull out these kind of things. But then we are also arguing forests are not built equally. You know, the Siberian forest is also still absorbed lesser compared to what tropical rainforest does. So in that sense, we are always saying that our forest has bigger responsibility. And you know, the biggest advantage for Malaysians and Indonesians, also Philippines in that sense, collectively we call it the region of Nusantara, is that since our forest is a very good carbon absorb, it's easier for us to become carbon neutral than any other industrialized country. Yes. Although our emission is higher, but our absorption rate is also higher. So which is why even like the Malaysian Socialist Party saying that Malaysia should target to become uh, carbon neutral by 2030. Of course, by looking European standards, it looks like crazy. I mean, <laughs> a European country to be 2050, 2040, and Malaysia says 2030. <laughs> because of this tropical rainforest, Malaysia was actually a carbon neutral country until 2006. So we have been out of this carbon neutral state for only 14 years compared to other countries which have been around for decades or maybe half a century. Yeah. So this well, sir, uh, to me, all you have to do is, is keep those trees there and extend them and then offer them to the rich countries for offsets. You know, they'll want to be wanting to offset, of course. But this brings me to the thing about Indigenous people. In Australia, when we had these terrible bushfires over the last summer, suddenly I notice a lot more of the cultural critics and the journalists are starting to talk to Indigenous people and saying how can we manage these forests differently and of course they know they have you know worked on these techniques it takes a lot of learning it's not something you can just do in a quick little um, 10-day course or something it's a deep learning but the Indigenous people are starting to get a lot more respect here just for that and cultural burning they call it and cultural management of the forest. Well, I'm wondering, uh, the Orang Asli, the last time I heard about them, your Socialist Party were doing a lot to support them because they were trying to stop illegal logging in the forests that they were protecting. Has anything changed since a few years ago? Are Orang Asli people being more respected for what they can offer in the way of protection of those forests? Yes, there has been some improvements in that uh, several years ago. Uh, but just to bear in mind, uh, illegal logging actually makes a small fraction of logging in Malaysia. In Malaysia, all the loggings, uh, forest is actually by default, it's a state property kind of thing. It's a state right. So the state indiscriminately gives out logging license. So that is important. Whether there is orang asli or not, they will just give it. So by default, they have said that orang asli are not the owners of the forest, although the people recognize them as uh, the generational people who have been living there. And Orang Asli has always been the first line of fight against uh, loggers. In Malaysia, things have got as dramatic as they have actually fought hand-to-hand, fist-to-fist, even erecting a blockage to prevent logging equipments there. So they have been protecting it for a long period of time. And when you look now, when people are actually looking upon the Orang Asli, because they are the ones who are protected. Many years ago, people actually condemned them saying that, oh, Forest is natural rights. We have the right to explore. We need this money and so on. But now, when there's been crisis of water shortage in Malaysia, there's been prolonged water shortage in Malaysia. And bear in mind, Malaysia is a tropical country, rainforest. We are raining nearly 200 days a year and we still have water shortage. All right? We have still serious water shortage. And people are now saying that we need to keep our forests. We need it as a source for our clean drinking water. Mm-hmm. And now people are like, oh, thank God the Orang Asli actually protected what we have and now we have to support. 
So what the orang asli have been fighting for decades, finally people can subscribe to the idea, and now people are actually coming in, and there's a lot of lot of resistance for for supporting forests. A good example is in the state of Selangor. The state of Selangor is the richest and the most industrialized state in Malaysia. It's equivalent to the state of New South Wales, and Kuala Lumpur is also within that state of Selangor. So and in within this year alone, there has been nearly. 12 or 13 times of water shortage this year and there's been times where you have lost water for nearly a week and when the state government decided to actually degazette a local forest there known as the Hulu Langat Forest Reserve there is a huge uproar among the entire state among the people to extend they already threatening that they will remove the state government in the next election if they refuse to back off so this is very interesting to see and yeah. just to let you know There's a small group of orang asli living in that forest, by the way. Very good. I'm glad to hear that. Look, you know, we're paying globally now. Let's look at the bigger picture. We are paying a heavy price for capitalism, as you said. This neoliberal marketplace thing—it's costing us the earth, as some of the slogans say. But the countries that are used to plundering, the old imperialist countries. They're now talking about offsets. They're talking about degrowth. I interview people in Europe all the time about degrowth, and you talked at the conference about liberating places and people from the market. You said something about horizontal growth. Can you talk about that? Okay, when we talk about horizontal growth, I think we have to look for a period uh, before the industrial revolution, before the for this global uh, globalization. When you look at horizontal growth. Community of people have always find resources among their areas, their nearbys, and they use it to improve their quality of living. And anything surplus, they are traded with the next community. And this is how things has been going. But when you look now, what is happening? We are destroying our own uh, domestic resources and so on. Okay, we are becoming so reliant on them. We are becoming so reliant on. Import and exporting on GDPs on this number that forgetting our own uh, global uh, natural wealth, right? So this is what we are trying people to focus. We want people to look at their have resources around you, and all we have to do is use it sustainably. And anything additional that we need, which we don't have, we can complement by trading with others. So that is where what we call that. So we don't have to depend on the so-called free market and compete with each other to overproduce everything. Now you look, everything is being overproduced. Whether you talk about food, whether you talk about vegetable oils, whether you talk about cars, but people could not afford it. There's a group of people who actually could not. There is starvation in Earth, yet there is an overproduction of food. So this is exactly what we are we we are trying to highlight that. So when you look at horizontal growth of growth, it's like people look around for them for growth. They look amongst their community, look inwards, and you only trade. To meet your deficit, not to trade to 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 increase your wealth, because what we are looking now is wealth means the numbers of dollars and cents in your pocket, the, your net worth, your your GDP growth. But we are forgetting that wealth means is the quality of life. That is very important. It's pointless if you're becoming the richest state in Malaysia, but then you do not have water for weeks for your people. I think that is pointless. I mean, Sabah yeah. is the richest state in the country, but they are so. The people have suffered for weeks without water. So that, and in a country where you rain two hundred days a year and you have water shortage, I think something is seriously wrong. So yeah. that's what I wanted to highlight. What um, what's the way forward for you? What's just some of the things you, you've mentioned? Sort of relocalizing so that your 
in charge more of your electricity, you're in charge more of your food supply and those things. So I think those relocalizing, everyone can understand that. Supply change under COVID, for example, shocked everybody that we didn't didn't have everything we needed, even for the hospitals. But what are, what are the main steps of the way forward, just in summary? I think the main step forward now is um, the status quo is there, I agree. Uh, and the status quo needs to be challenged. And historically, you've seen that this status quo have been heavily challenged by people, by mass movement. And that is what is actually moving the politicians to actually to change. That is actually what is changing the capitalism. A lot of young people are now looking at a carbon footprint of a particular product before they even buy it. And because of this reason itself, the corporates, the capitalists are forced to improve their product cycle. This is, this is a good change. Ten years ago, our only way forward was coal and natural gas. And now solar is so cheap, wind is so cheap. People are yes. saying, why the hell are we still even building coal power station and gas power station? Uh, last time, your only option was buying electricity from a utility or from a capitalist. Now you can self-generate. You can even live off the grid. Technologies are there. It's, it's amazing. There's a lot of progress. Uh, but then again, uh, this challenges the status quo. People are profiting from the existing system. And take, the bigger fight is to take them on the status quo. Uh, without changing that status quo, there's no progress. That's very important. <laughs> Thank you. Fantastic. That's really lovely to talk to you. Very interesting. Thank you, Sharon. We've been talking to Sharon Raj, who's in Malaysia. He's with the Climate Crisis Campaign for 2020 for the Socialist Party in Malaysia. And I suppose it'll be for 2021 too, won't it? Yep, we're definitely extending that for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, Sean. It's our last live show for the Beyond Zero Emissions community. Kurt has prepared a season of our best shows for you to listen to over the holidays and we will be back in February. My heartfelt thanks to Kurt and Andy who have been so steadfast during 2020. Thanks also to Rima and James who have been guest producers during the year and Michaela, Leanne and Maddie, who have helped us on the huge learning curve involved in remote broadcasting. Thank you to our guests tonight, Serena Everill and Rosaria Burcelli from Extinction Rebellion, Sophie Marjanak and Grace Archibald from uh, Client Earth, the lawyers group, also to Yessi Mosby and Lisa Villamu Jamison, whose campaign, Our Islands, Our Homes, You Can Join. A big thanks to Sharon Raj and Siva in Malaysia for keeping us connected. And now for some action. Although I hope we all can take a break and have a rest, a bit of a holiday, I hope, listeners, that you will also stay alert for one place in Australia where action will be needed. It may even be over the January holidays, and that's Narrabri. Farmersforclimateaction.org are calling on us. They are upset that the federal government has just approved the 850 gas wells on grazing land and the Pilliga Forest. It will suck out 37 billion litres of water, of our groundwater, and it's a high-risk investment. To support the farmers, will you please go to farmersforclimateaction.org.au and sign the petition. It's called Keep Gas Off Our Farms. Over this COVID year, we've broadcast about the One Million Jobs Plan from Beyond Zero Emissions, and it looks like, at the state level at least, it's becoming a reality. Billions of dollars have been committed to new renewable energy zones, 
and transmission lines in New South Wales and Victoria. Tasmania is now 100% renewable energy and going for 200%. New energy efficiency programs in housing retrofits are promised, but as BZE's Michael Lord said, the government should aim to create net zero energy all electric homes. So really no need for gas. The push for gas has to be resisted. We've reported on community climate campaigns all year and I'll finish with a letter from Julie Lyford from Groundswell Gloucester. They stood up against the AGL gas fracking their landscape and the Rocky Hill coal mine and they won in both cases and they set a legal precedent. So here's Julie's letter to just show you, you know, it's a, something to encourage you to think and to know that it will, things will change. Santos Gas Project will be fought to the bitter end. The community of Gloucester is in no doubt about the devastation being felt in Narrabri and other communities in the northwest New South Wales. For the Independent Planning Commission to have ignored the overwhelming Australia-wide community rejection of scientific reasoning as to why this ill-fated coal seam gas disaster should not go ahead just reinforces that government and industry bed-hop all the way to the bank. It took 12 years to rid our beautiful valley and Manning catchment of AGL's $1.2 billion disaster of a coal seam gas well field. The destruction to our community, the terrible social impacts and the loss of trust in government and industry was profound. We fought back as Narrabri and all who support them will. Greed and belligerence dominate the fossil fuel industry. Climate action and environmental justice drives the communities who will save and care for their places. So that's a message from one of our communities fighting back against gas and fighting towards renewable energy. Breaking news from New Zealand. They are joining the UK and Canada in declaring a climate emergency. Here's Jacinda Ardern. This declaration is an acknowledgement of the next generation, yeah, yeah. an acknowledgement right. of the burden that they will carry if we do not get this right and if we do not take action now. Now, importantly, this is a declaration that records the importance and formal importance of our intent as a nation and our intent on the global stage. As a government, we are also announcing the Carbon Neutral Government Program that requires government organisations to be carbon neutral by 2025. Mm -hmm. We must... We must get our own house in order. How can we stand and take a leadership position amongst the private sector unless we take the same action that we expect of them? But I encourage every member of this house to take the issue of climate change with the utter seriousness that it deserves. Vote in favour of this declaration today. Be on the right side of history. Be part of the solution we must collectively deliver for the next generation. So that's it for me. Have a lovely holiday, everybody. See you in February. Good night and good luck. Now here's a song from Miguel 
Heatwall and Eco Pella. So stand up proud, you singers all. You have the right to stand as tall as those who grow and those who tend, as those who make and those who mend. So stand up tall, you singers all. With empty pockets, empty hands, within your voice your wealth abounds. The common currency of song, we learn, we keep, 